Hello and welcome to the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor, and at Sifted we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And in this podcast every week, we have a peek inside what's been going on in the Sifted newsroom and we discuss the top news that's been coming out of Europe's startup sector and share some of our opinions on what that all means. This week, my usual co-host Eleanor, our deputy editor, is on a well-deserved holiday, but I have an excellent stand-in, our Startup Life reporter, Anissa. Hello. Hello. It's so nice to be able to co-host with you again. So today we will be looking at lots of the funding round announcements that have come in this week, despite all the doom and gloom and layoffs that we heard about last week. A very, very juicy investigation that our reporters Freya Pratty and Aina Kelly have been working on this week into an events company called Pollen, which has some issues. And we'll be speaking to another one of our reporters, Kai Nicole Schwartz, who has been speaking to our readers about the good and bad of startup management. So, Amy, what's been going on this week at Sifted? Well, Eleanor is away and in the UK we have a bumper bank holiday for the Queen's Jubilee. So it's a bit of a busy week because we've got to line up lots of stories for Thursday and Friday and Monday as well. And I guess in the wider startup world, people are still reeling from all the layoffs, you know, at Glovo and Zap and Gorillas that we heard about last week. But it's like everyone's kind of held on to their funding round announcements from last week and now we've got a whole load of news things hitting our inbox. So one startup that has raised money this week is a London-based care home staffing app called Florence which raised £28.5 million and what it does is it connects temporary nursing staff to care homes via an app and it also sells rotor management software to the care homes so it's kind of helping them plug gaps where they're lacking nursing staff um, much like we've seen with lots of locum software that is sold to hospitals to help them fill their staffing problems. And it's working with lots and lots of organisations already. It's working with 90,000 care professionals and 2,000 care organisations. So that's really interesting, Amy. As you know, elderly care is something I'm very interested in and passionate about. I care for my grandma. She moved in with us in January. Yet there are very few products that we have found that can help with those situations, especially as we're seeing uh, our grandparents age at a very fast rate. So what are we kind of seeing and what is the opportunity that this is going to enable? Yeah, I think after obviously COVID put a massive spotlight on this for everyone, even people who aren't actually caring for elderly people themselves. And it seems like now investors are also paying attention. So just this past month we've seen quite a few there was one called we help based in paris which raised 30 million euros another one called helpy from finland raised 3 million in seed funding and one based in berlin called patronus which provides digital tools for the elderly and their carers raised 7 million dollars from an early stage vc called cavalry ventures and we also know of other slightly bigger ones based in the uk like birdie and sarah care which has been around for quite a while and sarah has bought up quite a lot of care providers in the uk and it's now really quite a significant business so there obviously are tech companies there are startups all over europe getting into this but it would be good to see more money channeled into it given that the elderly population is growing and there's a lot that could be done to make being 
elderly and looking after elderly people easier and better. Agreed. It seems to be going in the right direction. And as you say, hopefully this eases the burden from people caring for older people, but also allowing more independence. Anissa, if you could magic up a startup that was doing something care related that would help you in your particular situation, what would they be doing? I think anything that can give my grandma in this situation more independence. So, for example, tools that allow her to order the food she wants or allows her to speak in the language that she speaks. We speak an Indian dialect that gives her the answers that she wants in an easy way, I think would be ideal. Things like iPads are a bit too much for her, but she loves the Alexa. So anything on top of an Alexa would be something I would like to build. Maybe in Hindi, that would be fun. Cool. Anyone out there who wants to start that business with Anissa or start it, that would be amazing. I'll be your first beta tester. Yeah, there we go. Um, And then another news story from this week outside of the realm of care was about a Finnish cybersecurity startup called Hox Hunt, which announced it had raised a $40 million Series B round. And we're hearing that cybersecurity and deep tech are two sort of areas of startups that are slightly less exposed to the current downturn. So it makes sense that in this particular moment, investors would be backing them big time. Amy, can you tell us a little bit about why you think that we're seeing that deep tech and cybersecurity are a little bit more protected from what is going on economically. Yeah, so I guess things like cybersecurity are very much in the, or they're very much not in the nice to have bucket. You know, if you're looking at the SaaS subscriptions you want to drop, making sure that phishing scams don't hit your employees' emails is probably not one you're going to axe straight away. We also spoke to an investor called Marcin Haker from OTP Ventures, who told us that these kind of products are also more likely to get acquired by other businesses than some businesses in other sectors, meaning that investors are a bit more secure that in some way they're going to get their money back if they invest in these businesses. You know, they're not just super reliant on them IPOing at some point. So that makes them more attractive as well. And there's some exciting news around funding for climate startups. What's going on over there? Yep. So Foodhack, the food tech community that also runs events and a newsletter, the event was the one that I was at a few weeks ago where I was testing out lots of different alt proteins of the future, has raised $1 million to, to develop and launch a platform that it's calling Hack Ventures. And the idea of Hack Ventures, which is already running in a beta version with several hundred users, is that this would be a very curated community only of angel investors who are super into climate tech. So it would be the kind of go-to destination for startups of that kind raising anywhere in the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about Food Hack and how it works? Yeah, so it's sat by three people, a guy called Arman and two women called Camille and Emily a few years ago. They used to work in food. They're based in Switzerland and they launched meetups for people in food tech. Then they ended up writing a newsletter, which I really recommend. It's a very good summary of what's been going on in food tech all around the world. And then they started getting all these startups and also investors coming to them saying, you know, do you know some interesting startups who are raising that we could invest in? And founders coming to them saying, hey, you know, all these investors, can you introduce us? Which kind of led the Food Hack team to realize that there was an opportunity for them to invest and for them to build infrastructure around this so that they didn't need to be the kind of 
middle person between all of these deals. And so far with this beta investment platform they have, they've backed 15 startups with around 100 of other investors getting in there. And lots of the kind of big name VCs and angels in this world of food and climate tech like Astonor and Food Labs are very involved with the food hack community as well. I'll definitely be signing up to that newsletter. Sounds right up my street. So one more story from the Sifted newsroom. There's some big news in the world of batteries, which is very exciting to me as I'm trying to persuade my parents to buy an electric car. Amy, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so British Volt, which is an electric vehicle battery company, which is already building what will become the UK's largest gigafactory. Gigafactories are these massive factories that produce electric vehicle batteries, has announced plans for a separate 200 million pound, what they're calling a scale-up facility, also in the UK. And what the new facility will be for is to work on and develop new types of batteries. As the other ones it's developing, the lithium-iron ones that we have, are very much far from perfect because they don't last very long, they overheat and they use a lot of natural resources to make. So obviously they're not the only people doing batteries right now. There's a lot of competition happening around Europe. Who else is in this space? So the other big one in Europe is Northvolt, which is a Swedish company also building gigafactories. But I guess what's really interesting about British Volt and why we're watching them pretty carefully and closely is because it's received a significant amount of funding from the UK government. It's had a hundred million pounds from them. And given it's a pretty young company, that is a very interesting move. So we think this means that the UK government sees this as a very strategic technology that it wants to make sure is being developed on British shores. And now for our first interview of the day, we are speaking with Freya Pratty, one of our reporters based in London, about a story that she and Aina Kelly, another person on our team, have been working on that is hot off the press. They have been looking into a startup called Pollen, which offers people event experiences around the world, raised has raised quite a bit of venture capital, including a $150 million round just in April, but also seems to be a little bit troubled. It laid off 200 people in May, just after announcing the round. And it also has a lot of grumpy people on social media complaining about its slow or non-existent refunds. So, Freya, how did this come about? Yeah, so the story started last week when I received an email from a former employee of Pollen, the company. It was quite short. It just said, you should look into this company. There's a lot of stuff going on that people would find interesting. So from that, me and Aina, another reporter at Sifted, did a quick look across Twitter and we quickly found a load of messages and posts from people saying, I want my refund back from Pollen. And we found Twitter pages called things like Pollen Group Action and a change.org petition called Stop Pollen. So at that point, I think we thought this is something to look into. There's, there was immediately a lot of stuff to go off. And all these grumpy customers that you spotted on Twitter, Freya, what exactly were they complaining about and what did they want refunds for? We spoke to four former employees and one current employee of Pollen, along with eight customers. And the general picture we got was that Pollen had to cancel a number of events during the pandemic because of coronavirus restrictions. And they had then promised people 90 days 
before for them to get their money back. But the people we spoke to had had waited longer than that. And some of them are still waiting to get their money back. A couple of people here waiting on about a grand. They said we spoke to one person in America where a lot of Poland's customers come from who's waiting on over four thousand dollars. And I spoke to someone who is based in the UK who told me that she's Uh, She just received her refund back a few days ago, but before that she'd been struggling with rent and bills waiting on this money back. So it's, it's a lot of money to people. And it's also a lot of people, right? So you scoured social media and you found over 50 Twitter posts from customers just in the past week tagging Pollen, asking them for their money back. Exactly. And under the uh, Instagram posts announcing that events have been cancelled, there's often tens of posts asking for refunds as well. And we obviously put all of this to Pollen, didn't we, Freya? And what was their response? You spoke to the founder, Callum, on the phone. What did he say about this sort of these refund accusations from the people that we'd spoken to? Uh, So Pollen told us that it aims to refund in 90 days. That's its official strategy. And that that it has achieved that in 90% of cases. In another email, Callum, the founder of Pollen, told us that if a customer does happen to be waiting on a refund, it will be because Pollen is waiting on payments from hotels and vendors and suppliers, which are cancelled on when the events were cancelled, but it was waiting for the money back. So sometimes the reason these customers are waiting for refunds is because Pollen itself has a cash flow problem because it's also waiting for a refund. Yeah, Callum was insistent we don't call it a cash flow problem, but he did say... Um, that they they are wasting on a significant amount of money back from vendors that they've cancelled from cancelled events. And you spoke to an employee, didn't you, who we call Sam in the piece, which isn't their real name, but we anonymised people to protect them. And they said that this person alleges that this often happened and Pollen would wait until the last minute to cancel events, even though they suspected that they might be cancelled for a while beforehand. Yeah, Sam said that staff within Pollen would say to management, we know this might be cancelled, we should do it now because people will need their money back. And he said that the management would say no. We had another employee we spoke to who we called Alexandra in the piece, again, to protect her anonymity. She backed up what Sam said and she said that even if there was a risk of an event being cancelled, they kept it going because they needed the cash flow coming in. Um Pollen said, didn't they, to us that the decision to cancel was, I quote, always difficult and that if it was unable to deliver an event, it would, you know, try and postpone rather than cancel. And we spoke to one employee called Charlie who had left in 2019 and they said that they weren't really that surprised about all of this because I guess like many startups, Pollen suffered from growing very quickly, acquiring a whole bunch of other businesses and needing to integrate them into the team. And that often, as we've seen with other startups as well, that leads to operations not being entirely smooth. Yeah, so Charlie also brought up that there was quite a lot of spending on employee expenses. So staff could go to a lot of the experiences, which obviously meant a big expenditure for Pollen. And Charlie also told us that they would have staff parties just for for employees. There was a big gathering in California in 2019. And Charlie said that they thought it was strange that Pollen could afford to have those massive parties. And Sam, another person we spoke to, said similar things to Charlie, that staff could fly to big events, stay there and party and expense everything. When we put this to Pollen, it said it encourages employees to attend its experience and that that is a core part of its employer value proposition. So Freya, what 
what do you think is next for pollen? How, how's the outlook looking? Well, talking to people within the company, staff morale is low. They claimed after the latest layoffs. Uh, we spoke to one person who has plans to leave. She said to us, I quote, it's a shit show. I don't want to be associated with the company any longer. So the impression we're getting is that internally things are tricky for employees who remain there after the layoffs. There's some good news for customers. Gina, one of the people we spoke to, received her money back uh, a few days ago after talking to me and after messaging the management on LinkedIn. But other people are still waiting. So Carly from America, uh, she's the person waiting on just over $4,000 and she's filled out complaint forms. She's done several things, several emails, but she's still waiting. So a mixed picture from the customers we spoke to. Thank you very much, Freya. And if you would like to read more fantastic investigations from Freya, who is our super snooper at Sifted, she is freya at sifted.eu. And she also is available to contact anonymously, right, Freya? What are your details? Yeah, you can contact me on Proton Mail uh, if you want to contact me in a more secure way. That email is fpw100 at protonmail.com. And as Amy said, I, I would love to receive any tips or gossip. For our final story today, we're speaking to Kai Nicole Schwartz, who's been working on our latest community journalism project. He's been speaking to people in European startup land about how they've experienced good and bad managers. Welcome, Kai. Hello, Anissa. Um, and yeah, that's right. So we've been sending out a community survey to our readers for the past few weeks um, all about the bosses that they've had at startups. And we've been asking them things like, you know, did a manager set you clear goals? Did they give you enough personal support? Um, do you feel like they were equipped to be a manager? And have you experienced any bullying or discrimination or harassment? And maybe the most surprising statistic, or maybe totally unsurprising, depending on your own experience, was that 83% of sifted readers felt that either a minority or none of their managers were properly equipped to manage them, which is a little bit crazy, actually. That adds up to quite a lot of really, really bad managers in startup Europe. But we also found out that two-thirds of sifted readers felt like they'd been micromanaged in the past, and 50% of people felt like they hadn't been set clear goals, 50% felt like they hadn't received the right personal and emotional support from their manager. And half of sifted readers that responded to the survey also said that they, they experienced bullying, harassment, or being discriminated against by a manager. This is pretty crunchy stuff. Why did the readers who we spoke to, why do they think management is so bad at startups? Yeah, well, micromanagement was one of the most common things that people, that people brought up. Um, and it turns out that loads of bosses are really, really bad at setting clear work-life boundaries. One person that responded to the survey said that they were expected to be on a Zoom call for the entire day, so they'd have to have their camera on, which is just so invasive. Another person said that being micromanaged just really erodes your confidence, um, and it really impacted their mental health. But another thing that came up was this idea around founder syndrome, and a number of people mentioned this, and this is when founder launches a business and then really struggles to let go of ownership of certain certain parts of it. So Anissa, you are both a founder and you have been a manager of many people. Do you reckon you've been a perpetrator of founder syndrome? 
Nothing like putting me on the spot, Amy. Um, I definitely think founder syndrome is a thing. I think I have been micromanaging. It's really hard to let go in the early days of when you're growing a team. So I can relate, but I'd like to say with some executive coaching, I'm a lot better now. I would hope people would say I'm a lot better now. What about you, Amy? You're obviously a manager of quite a lot of people and you joined in the very, very early days of Sifted. What do you think you're like as a manager? Well, we can ask Kai that because he, he has to put <laughs> awful, up with me. the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and for other absolutely awful managers like me, Kai, what advice did our readers have? We've got to have a conversation with the manager as um, at the first port of call. Um, and if that doesn't work, readers said that you've got to document things. You know, you've got to record what's happening and the conversations that you had, because then if you do end up taking it to HR, you've got everything written down, which just makes the whole situation much easier to manage. But to be honest, the most, the most common answer was you just got to get out. You just got to leave. And that a toxic culture really doesn't allow you to do your best work and you as an employee are absolutely not responsible for this top level company culture. Yeah, I guess there's a difference, isn't there, between managers who maybe haven't been managers before, and that's the case with a lot of people at startups, but are trying really hard and trying to set clear goals and like learning as they go and getting feedback from the people they manage. But, you know, being bullied or harassed, that's that's a whole other level, isn't it? Well, yeah, and that stat was the most unpleasant stat that came out of this survey um, and the most harrowing tales obviously came from this, this section of the survey. And people, people said that a lot of their bosses were openly sexist in the workplace and told inappropriate jokes. Another person said that their boss just wouldn't take any action when they faced misogynistic abuse. And they weren't the only person to talk about this idea of their boss not taking action. Another person said that when they went to report a racist joke to their boss. Their boss said that office banter is okay. But not everything was so was so direct. And one woman of colour told us that she'd actually never experienced any outward displays of discrimination. But she said it absolutely was bubbling under the surface. And and this idea of indirect discrimination was also a fairly a fairly common one. One person said that she was constantly belittled by her manager in the workplace. And she couldn't work out what the issue was. And it was only when she went to speak to her other women colleagues that she found out that this manager just treated them all like that. And Kai, you have a new community survey out, which promises to potentially be just as bummer. What's that about? Yeah, so we want to build a picture of what's what's happening in Europe right now with a load of economic uncertainty on the horizon. So we're reaching out to people and you'll be able to find this in our newsletters next week and all over social media. But we want to know exactly what steps startups are taking to, say, increase their runway. You know, we want to find out if people or founders and the leadership team are feeling more pressure from investors in the current environment, or if people just feel less secure in their jobs because there's less money available in in VC right now. So this survey will be live for the next couple of weeks and it is totally anonymous. Um, so you don't have to give us any details at all. So if you're working at a startup or running a startup, please look that up and take the survey. Let us know. Give us the mood music of the moment. Thank you very much, Kai. And thank you very much, Anissa. 
If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage, all our latest news stories and juicy, juicy investigations on sifted.eu. You can also find all of the articles that we've mentioned in this episode of the podcast in the pod description. Please sign up for our newsletters. Please sign up for Anissa's excellent Startup Life newsletter where she digs into what's really going on at startups and the, the pains and advice of startup operators. Follow us on Twitter and let us know what you think of the Sifted podcast. We are amy at sifted.eu or anisa at sifted.eu. And please join us next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.